KRCL, 90.9 FM, HD1 in Salt Lake City, Ogden, and Provo, 96.7 FM in Park City, on the web at krcl.org. Listener-supported community radio. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from our sustaining members and Mark Miller Subaru. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives, every weeknight at 6 here on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones, and thank you to everyone for your support during Radiothon last week. Thanks to you, another six months of KRCL. For nothing. For those that did donate, thank you. For those that haven't, they did it for you, and you still have the opportunity to put some dollars on the turntables at krcl.org. And thank you to the folks who chose the trees. We're going to plant 110 trees with Tree Utah. And uh, keep the KRCL Sacred Grove growing. Coming up on the show tonight, Utah Tech Leads, Beta Boom, Google Fiber. We're all going to talk Utah women in tech here on Radioactive. So stick around for that panel discussion in about the half hour. We're also going to talk about living traditions, which needs volunteers, folks. A Starbucks union organizer came in and did an interview with me earlier today, and there is an action taking place tomorrow at another store that is going to try and unionize here in the Beehive State. Plus, the UMFA and Marriott Library have launched digital exhibitions that use art and archival objects to reveal new insights into our region's cultural, environmental, and political histories. At your fingertips, you'll be able to pull this up and educate yourself about all of that. And it also connects to our first guest during Rallies and Resources. And tonight we have Don Borchart with us, Performing Art Program Coordinator for Living Traditions Festival at Washington and Library Square on May 20th to 22nd. So just a bit away, they need volunteers. Don, how are you? I'm good. I'm happy to be here for this, but I must say, I aspire to, in the future, be a punk rock farmer on ah, your show. <laughs> I love it. Every Friday night, Aldine, KRCL's Punk Rock Farmer, we talk urban farming. Oh my gosh. So if you need some tips, Al's got them, and he's got seeds <laughs> as well. But Don, I, I apologize, I forgot to ask you if, uh, how to pronounce your last name before oh, you came you on Borchardt. Okay, yeah. great. So Living Traditions is one of my favorite festivals, and I've really missed it over the course of COVID. Last year, you did kind of some pop-ups uh, a couple of weekends in a row, but now we're back. Mm-hmm. That's all right. We're back, like you said, May 20th through 22nd at Washington and Library Square, which is connected by 200 East. Um, so it's we're back in our big version of the festival like we had in 2019 and earlier. So uh, for the uninitiated, let's explain what Living Traditions is all about because it's very unique and it's totally free. Yeah. Um, Living Traditions is we're really celebrating the cultural diversity of Utah and Salt Lake City. So we're bringing together people from all different communities through performing artists, craft artists, food, um, but it's, you know, historic and contemporary living traditions. More than 90 cultures basically mm-hmm. represented. I, I, I always remember the taiko drummers because yes. they're so striking, but there's handicrafts from mm-hmm. a variety of traditions. And then, of course, I love the food. Yes. <laughs> Who doesn't love to eat? I know, right? What are some of the highlights that you're looking forward to since you just joined in December, actually, with Salt Lake City Arts? I did. Um, So I'm originally from Wisconsin, not Utah, but I am Native American. And so I'm really excited that we have a couple Native um, bead workers in the craft artist area. And we also have an intertribal powwow 
Um, so I'm super excited about those things. And so there's um, vendor booths, mm -hmm. but there's also uh, scheduled programming where folks can see handcrafting going on, artisanship. Yeah, we have um, some of the people in the booths will be doing demonstrations of their crafts, but we'll also have workshops and meet the artist panels um, and some food demonstrations. So you can check out our schedule. Um, we'll be on livingtraditions.com slash festival and other backslash. Excellent. Uh, yeah, I'm looking online at saltlakearts.org slash living traditions presents <laughs> and you can get the full schedule here. Yeah. Any particular ones you want to shout out? There's a whole kids programming thing as well. Yeah, we have kids programming. So we're super excited. We have a private um, school day in the morning on Friday, May 20th from 9 a.m. to 12. So if you are a teacher listening and you want to sign up last minute it is a free uh, school day for those kids but then throughout the weekend we have kids activities as well um, so we're super excited about that they can come make Mexican paper flowers um, interact with other artists there's some dance demonstrations they can join in on lawn games that's very cool yeah. you did a living legacy series that I don't know if it just coincided with COVID or if that was a, a kind of a pivot out of COVID to keep the stories um, visible for people, but um, understand that the festival is going to have a premiere night of some more Living Legacy stories. Yeah, I'm super excited about that. It's really, for me, a way to thank some of the major stakeholders in the festival and long-standing artists. So in the library auditorium, because we have some programming inside the library as well, um, at 6 p.m. on Friday, May 20th, we'll have a Living Legacy video premiere, and everyone is welcome to join um, the festival has been around. This will be its 36th year, so we'll have a video celebrating the last 35 years of the festival, as well as um, some videos focusing on specific artists. Um, and while we're talking about film screenings, we also have partnered with the Sundance Film Festival or the Sundance Institute Local Lens Program. Um, so both Saturday and Sunday at 4 p.m. in the library auditorium, we'll have free um, Sundance Shorts packages. So That's I'm super fantastic. excited about that. Well, and I'm hoping in the past I've brought those pieces on because they're very um, mm. audio friendly. So mm -hmm. we'll share those in the future then, okay? Yes. Now, I found the schedule prior to you coming here and now I can't find it <laughs> okay. so where is so it so go to livingtraditionsfestival.com oh that's my problem backslash festival backslash ah okay so folks we'll put that in the show notes so you can find the schedule and plan your trip because it is free you can spend all day every day down there and just have a ball you're gonna have to buy your own food though I'm afraid <laughs> <laughs> buy food and we have beer from uh, Bohemian Brewery so we're taking care of you down there at Living Traditions. Full. One thing that the community needs to do for Living Traditions, though, folks, is volunteer. Don, mm -hmm. what do you need? Because it's more than 100 volunteers that make this thing go. It, that's correct. Um, we have about 90 volunteers so far, but we would love to get those numbers up. So if you just go to livingtraditionsfestival.com, you can sign up to volunteer. You get a shirt. You get free soda. You get lots of high fives. Um, you get to enter in different raffle prizes. Um, we're looking for volunteers for all different areas from um, helping with kids activities to some production volunteers um, soda sales all different kinds of stuff you can help with plus you get to see the action behind yeah, the scenes you do and do something good for the community meet new folks from mm -hmm. across 90 cultures again May 20th to 22nd when's the last day that people can sign up to volunteer 
That's a great question. Um, we you don't have a folks. deadline, so just <laughs> sign up. We do have a uh, volunteer training next Thursday, so preferably probably by next Wednesday. Okay, we'll put that in the show notes <laughs> as well. All right, Living Traditions, any closing comments that you want to impart to folks about this unique festival in our community? Yeah, um, so we're right downtown. So uh, because we're downtown, uh, green bikes, UTA tracks, all that kind of stuff is really a great way to get to the festival. Um, Parking downtown is probably not the most fun thing in the world sometimes. So really use (laughs) our public transit, just going to push that. But I'm super, super excited about this festival. And we have an amazing team behind the scenes. So we're really excited to put this on for everybody. Well, Donna, it was a pleasure to meet you. Please come back, bring those Living Legacies videos. We'll play the audio for our listeners and uh, keep passing the microphone to the more than 90 cultures that call Utah home. Again, folks, Living Traditions coming up May 20th to 22nd. Thanks, Don. Thank you. All right. And now a a union organizer, a young man by the name of Jacob Lawson. You may have heard him on the show previously. There's an action tomorrow. I caught up with him earlier today. Here's that conversation. Jacob, last time we talked Mm -hmm. to you with Nick Burns, our community co-host on Wednesdays, you were talking about unionizing at the Cottonwood Heights store. Mm -hmm. And we've just seen another Utah Starbucks store come online, the one on 4th South in downtown Salt Lake, right? Yeah, yeah. So how are things progressing with the union push? Um, I think things are progressing really, really well. I know Howard and the rest of corporate are kind of playing hardball. Howard um, Schultz. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you saw the article that came out yesterday. I think it was a New York Times one, but he's um, posting this, having the managers post this paper in every store that's saying, like, these are all of the wonderful things that Starbucks has done for you, like, over the years. And it's like, these are all of the things that, could go away with the union and he's verbatim being like i'm not going to give the union or union organizing stores the same new benefits package that he's releasing in august which is illegal because no store has bargained and solidified a contract so we're preemptively telling you he will retaliate yeah and i've heard or i've just seen experts chime in on it and it's just very illegal you know if we had contracts established then he could be like yeah you're not going to get the same benefits but not a single store does mm-hmm. not a single store has bargained a contract yet um and they keep being like we're going to bargain in good faith you know and they're not <laughs> so what is the plan tomorrow i understand there's an action or two planned yeah so tomorrow um i'm going to be m- just speaking with the organizing committee Um, of the fourth and fourth store just about the union effort and how important it is that the community um, is supporting us to the way that they are and just how much we appreciate it because the community showing up that the way they have been has been what's been convincing a lot of people and changing minds is they're hearing community members come in and tell their own experiences with the union you know I know one of our no votes became a yes vote because Um, A gentleman came in. He's like, yeah, I'm a union member because I'm a union member. I got to retire when I was 47. And, you know, someone who was on the fence, she is a single mom. She was like, you know, that changed my mind. You know, I would love to be able to retire before I'm 50. And um, just like it's amazing having people from all sides of like the political spectrum come and support us. And that's because, what you're finding in when you work? Yeah, yeah. No, everyone, even the wealthier people in like Cottonwood Heights and like these business owners, they, they're encouraging us to unionize. Um, I've had a specific, um, I don't know what business he owns. He's like, but 
he's told me, he's like, Starbucks and big corporations like this need to pay their employees better and they need to give better benefits because they have the ability and means to. He's like, I'm a small company and I, you know, um, pay my employees and give them better benefits than, you know, a multi-billion dollar company like Starbucks does. What are your main uh, objectives in unionizing? Is it better pay, better benefits? Is it a routine schedule as opposed to just-in-time scheduling that we've heard a lot about? Yeah, yeah. It's not even routine scheduling. You know, that would be nice to have a set schedule, but it's more of just guaranteed hours. Because Starbucks, the way it operates now, they kind of just pick and choose when they want to take away our hours. They're like, oh yeah, you know, sales are down, it's less busy, but our store might not necessarily be, you know, down. My store is consistent and it's been very consistent since even like our holiday season, which is supposed to be our peak season. Um, So we were still doing the same amount of traffic with literally like two less people on the floor because they just had decided to cut hours. Um, And this is uh, in tandem with the $5 million labor cuts across the board that everyone has experienced in the company whether they're organizing with the union or not. And it's because they are hemorrhaging money um, paying for these very expensive Littler Mendelssohn attorneys and all the fees, you know, because I think they have to have like two or three attorneys per state. Mm. So how many stores now uh, unionizing in Utah? The two. Mm-hmm. Any more to come? What's your sense of Definitely the region? More to come. Um, the region's doing good. Idaho joined us recently. Um, and I know Idaho has, you know, more to come. So it's just. We're in the early stages out here in the Midwest. I hope to see Nevada and hopefully Wyoming join. All right. So where can people catch up with the union efforts at Starbucks? Um, there's Starbucks Workers United. It's just SB, then Workers United on like Instagram, Twitter, or there's um, you do Starbucks Workers United dot uh, org for the website. We have our own page that we just created yesterday, which is uh, Utah Starbucks Workers United, or Starbucks Workers United Utah, I think, specifically, which you can find on Instagram and a, uh, Twitter, and we have our email. So if you're a Starbucks employee and you're interested in unionizing, but you're afraid and don't know where to go, um, email us. It's it's a very long email. It is Starbucks Workers United Utah at gmail.com, but I mean, you know, it gets the message across. Great. We'll put a link in the show notes. For people that want to catch up with you tomorrow, where and when? It's going to be just um, on the city sidewalk around the 4th and 4th store. I do not know what the turnout's going to look like. Uh, I think the Fox 13 team that covered the Monday um, filing talked about it. So I'm I'm expecting maybe the block to be. And that Monday filing for the 4th and 4th store Mm -hmm. in downtown Salt Lake. What time tomorrow? Um, It's going to be at 12 tomorrow. 12 noon. Mm -hmm. Jacob, thanks for coming in and keeping radioactive listeners up to date on your unionizing project. Of course, of course. I am so glad I got to be here and thank you for having me. Jacob Lawson, do check out the show notes for a link to the Utah organizers. Now it looks like Idaho, possibly Wyoming joining in the region for a push to unionize Starbucks stores. And again, that's at noon tomorrow, the fourth south location in downtown Salt Lake City. I believe that's about 400 East if you want to stop by and learn more firsthand from the folks doing the organizing. I'm Laura Jones. You're listening to Radioactive here on KRCL 90.9. Still to come, Utah women in tech. But right now, going to talk about this new digital exhibitions launched by the Utah Museum of Fine Arts and the Marriott Library. 
three new digital exhibitions that use art and archival objects to reveal new insights into our region's cultural, environmental, and political history. They're part of Landscape, Land Arts, and the American West, a four-year joint research and scholarly engagement initiative between the museum and the library. And to find out more, we're going to pass the microphone to my next two guests this evening. Joining me from the Marriott Library, Jessica, is it Bryman? Bryman. Yes. Jessica is here, Art and Archives Metadata Librarian. And joining us from the UMFA, their collections research curator, curator Alana Wolf. Hi, Alana. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Absolutely. I love that this is going to be at everyone's fingertips to access. So let's start at the top. And Alana, how did these exhibitions start? Well, these started because of our collaboration um, with the grant that we were offered um, by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. It's a four-year grant for the library and the museum to collaborate together and find innovative ways to use both of our collections uh, together and see how those collections can actually speak to each other. That's the biggest challenge, I think, for museums or any entity that collects um ephemera, books, records, and now digital data. We were talking just before we cracked the mics, folks, that you know, KRCL's got a lot of digital data. What do we what do we do with it? And then getting it into the hands of folks is key for uh, it being help helping us to understand where we come from. Would you say that's the case, Jessica? Absolutely. I've worked in the library's special collections for almost a decade now. And um, you know, it's Looking back at all these slices of history, in particular, one of my favorite objects that we have in the archives are home videos. Um, They're just amazing. Um, They're the kind of history that you're not going to find in the books. Yeah, I saw something recently online, and it was colorized film uh, in the Netherlands from like the, I don't know how long ago, more than 100 years ago, and they had applied technology, and it made it just come to life. And being able to see ourselves in the past, I think, helps us envision a future. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's talk about these digital exhibitions. Um, Mining the West, Primary Elements, Utah Women Working for Better Days, and Time Trip, Robert Smithson's Spiral Jetty, and Utah in the 1970s. So your exhibitions use objects from across the catalogs, Alana? That's correct. So uh, what makes these exhibitions unique is that we're really bringing together uh, the fine art that the UMFA has, um, and we're putting that alongside uh, documents, manuscripts, personal papers, bumper stickers, um, all kinds of things that uh, that the library collects. And having those two things together, uh, the two collections together, start to make a much more interesting picture, I think, mm-hmm. of thinking about um, not only our history, but what we've collected, why we collect these things. Yeah, why they're important. Right. So can I get to this digitally by going to either one of your websites? Yes, you okay. sure can. Uh, so you can get to the exhibitions uh, by going to U- umfa.utah.edu. Um, or you can go from the library at exhibits.lib.utah.edu. 
Edu. We'll and put those in the show them. notes, folks, so you don't have to remember <laughs> them. But Jessica, let's dig into Mining the West primary elements. Can you give us a little taste? Sure. Mining the West primary elements really started because um, there's just so much material uh, that the library and museum hold that have interrelated content there. Uh, it's also a really broad topic that we felt like would offer us a lot of ways to dive in in terms of we could talk about economics and industry and um, impacts on humans and the environment. And that just expanded the amount and the types of objects we could include. Um, one unique aspect of this exhibition that um, is, is part of the point of, of why we did it on a digital platform is that we asked artists, scholars, uh, curricula experts, and other creators to contribute their voices and perspectives to the exhibition. Paisley Rechtal, the Poet Laureate, what does she do for this? Paisley Rechtal did an amazing piece where she used the uranium mining oral histories in special collections and she reconstructed the text into a documentary poem. And um, it's really, it's breathtaking and it's chilling to see how she's arranged them. And I, I've never experienced the oral histories as a whole rather than as individual voices. And it's just an incredible uh, experience. She's not the only poet who's contributed to these unique digital exhibitions. No, she's not. Um, I'd like uh, to highlight the work of Tacey Atsidi. She is a poet, and um, her work is a firsthand experience of mining's impact on indigenous communities, and it just has an immediacy and an eloquence that sort of grabs the reader and doesn't let go. Well, we love poetry here at Radioactive, so I'm thinking I'm going to have to invite them down. We've had both of them on before, so I look forward to that. Then there's Utah Women Working for Better Days, Jessica. What's this one about? Yes. So this was a collaboration with Better Days 2020, uh, an organization that popularizes women's history uh, in Utah. And it actually was a physical exhibition that opened at the UMFA three days before the university <laughs> I this. before I the university closed down due to the pandemic uh -huh. in 2020. So it never quite got its full due. Um, but uh, the exhibition is is not so much a story of women's suffrage, but uh, using art and archival objects to encourage visitors to think about women's contributions to the political process and think about the multiplicity of ways that um, everyone can continue that legacy. And I believe we collaborated to help in that COVID pivot with uh with the UMFA and Juliana Serena of the B. We'll have to put a link to that again, Alana, because I remember that when COVID hit and I got a call from Juliana saying we have to still tell these stories. And that's, again, the significance of the digital platform. Right, Jess? Absolutely. It was, um, I mean, it's wonderful uh, for us to still 
have that programming exist, even though the in-person program had to be canceled because of COVID. We were so fortunate to be able to work with you and KRCL to still um, get the program out there. That was fun. Yeah. Anytime, let us know. I'm looking forward to digging into this archive and finding some audio to share because I think another aspect of this is you know, making sure people know it's available so then go dig in and go, our history is much wider and broader than we often are shown. Again, because museums, books, et cetera, it, you know, you narrow down the scope. And now this can be a self-directed um, journey. Let's talk about time trip, Utah Spiral Jetty and Robert Smithson in the 70s, Alana. So this was another um, casualty of our museum closing, it was also uh, supposed to be an in-person exhibition. Um, And this was to coincide with the completion of artist Robert Smithson's Spiral Jetty, um, which is an iconic work of land art that is on the northern shore of Great Salt Lake. And um, that 50-year anniversary uh, would have been April 2020. Uh, so that was not a very convenient time for us. Uh, so we did have to pivot. Um, and I think uh, as we had we had already been doing research uh, in the archives and, um, and in our collection uh, to see what the relationships between Smithson's work and what was happening here in Utah and specifically in Salt Lake City um, during the time period that he came out here, he came out here numerous times and actually served as a visiting professor uh, for a very brief period, which a lot of art historians don't even realize. Yeah. Wow. So you can dig, dig into this collection and learn more about it. And that's one of the important aspects of these digital exhibitions, folks. But uh, Jessica and Alana, what are some of the surprising discoveries that you made that you want to share with folks to get them to click on over? Alana, what you got? Uh, well, I would say with um, with Time Trip, uh, you can kind of pour through there. And uh, not only can you see Smithson's faculty profile photograph, um, but you can see a number of contracts and sort of mundane things that paint a very interesting picture next to the artwork. Uh, one of the things that you will see is the political participation of students at the University of Utah. Um, So you will see some of the programming that uh, the university actually hosted, like the first Earth Day, which actually turned into Earth Week. That's right. Um, There was a week-long event where we were hosting uh, internationally known speakers um, called the Urgent Now. And uh, so we had debates where Jerry Rubin was going up against um, Robert Welch, who was a uh, quite a <laughs> volatile conspiracy theorist uh, who had his own right-wing um, organization. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. It is <laughs> astounding. And that is actually the most interesting thing, I think, that I found in looking at this material is we've been talking about the environmental situation here for much longer than people may have realized. Um, We have certainly been talking about inequities 
in gender and race. Um, these these were very very urgent issues um, at various points, and I think that the material helps us to reflect on what people have done in the past. Yeah, and how we can think through addressing those situations yeah. right now well and the urgency of now makes one feel like nothing's been done until this very moment but then we can also look back jess and see there actually was quite a bit going on is that something you found in looking and putting this together absolutely i think that um one of the reasons utah women working for better days uh, is so exciting is that it incorporates objects from the archive that you may not think of as something that would exist there. There's protest posters from uh, the 2017 women's marches mm. on Washington. And um, so marrying that sort of contemporary objects in the archives with the women's campaign posters from the 1930s um, is, is really a neat experience uh, about looking at the spectrum of involvement. Well, thank you so much for coming down and talking about these new uh, ex digital exhibitions and this partnership between the Utah Museum of Fine Arts and the Marriott Library. So what are you working on next, Jess and Alana? How is this going to continue this innovation? I will be remaining as a librarian in special collections, but doing this work um, for the last three and a half years has made me really excited about the potential for collaboration and also about the UMFA's um, amazing collection. And so I'm excited to continue some of the projects that we've started with um, between the library and museum. And I know that both the library and museum as institutions have really valued this work and are, are excited to keep going with it. Alana? So I am actually working on a book project um, that is based on the research that I did during this grant. Um, and it will be looking at art technology and counterculture movements and how those intersected on uh, college campuses during the 1970s. Oh, that sounds like a whole month of shows. So <laughs> when you get ready and want to come down and talk about it, we uh, extend you the microphones here at KRCL. One more time, though, what's the website? for your respective organization so folks can connect. So at the UMFA, it's umfa.utah.edu. And Jess? For the library, it's lib.utah.edu. Great. We'll put those in the show notes. Jessica Bryman and Alana Wolf, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. When we come back, Utah Women in Tech. So I've got Imogen Heap and Me the Machine on KRCL 90.9. Support for KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and their Loves Diversity Initiative. Mark Miller Subaru is a proud community partner of Project Rainbow, spreading love together this Utah Pride Month. Learn more at projectrainbowutah.org or markmillersubaru.com. Salt Lake County's Green and Healthy Homes program helps create housing that's both energy efficient and safe for low to moderate income families, including refugees and regardless of legal status. Details at slco.org slash green dash healthy dash homes. 
Welcome back to Radioactive on KRCL 90.9. I'm Laura Jones, and coming up at 7 o'clock, it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman, followed by Thursday Night Psych Out with DJ Mike at 8. At 10.30, The Dirty Boulevard with Gianni. And then you're going to get I Don't Sound Like Nobody with Rich at 1, Illustrated Blues with Jolene at 3 a.m., and John Florence kicking off your brand new day for a Friday at 6 a.m. Check out all of our programs. In fact, the last two weeks available to stream on demand at our website, KRCL. Org. And now it's time for a radioactive panel discussion about Utah women in tech. Mother's Day is coming up. I always like to take a unique take on that subject by just talking to some women about their lives and what's going on. And after watching what happened during COVID to women in general and the burdens placed on them to care for the family, to educate children, we saw people drop, dropping out of the workforce, making decisions that they, they had to to make things work. I know that affected everybody, but we're focusing on women today and women in tech. So how are women in tech doing? Let's meet our panel here tonight. Joining us from Google Fiber, we have Ashley Church, West Region General Manager. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me today. How do you come to tech? I came to tech, uh, I, I came to tech about nine, 10 years ago now after graduating at Stanford University and was living in Silicon Valley. and wanted to join the this tech scene that was in my backyard, uh, graduating fresh out of school and started a startup there. And I've been at Google now for the last nine years, uh, started my uh, time at Google with YouTube and, and our partner operations team. And then I've been with Google Fiber, which is an internet service provider, a separate branch uh, and what we call another bet within the Alphabet family at Google for the last seven years. Excellent. Thanks for being here. Of course. Kimmy Palou, am I saying that right? Yeah, it's pretty all good. Right. Managing partner at Beta Boom, and you're all about raising the money, but helping folks who don't necessarily have access to the money, right? That's exactly right. So we focus on uh, software that's for women and multicultural consumers, and by virtue of that, we largely invest in founders that are women and people of color. And so, you know, right now we're over 70% um, is in people of color and 80% with women. And so those demographics tend not to get the capital and yeah. that's definitely the focus area for us. And how did you come to tech? Yeah, yourself? I've been in tech, uh, gosh, about 20 years now, um, actually over 20 years. So I did computer science also uh, for my studies in undergraduate. And then I moved to the Bay Area as well, straight out of college and uh, built my own innovation firm. So I was in the tech industry there, serving both startups and corporations to help with new product development mm. and forced my way into the venture capital space. Forced <laughs> your way. I was reading someone about someone that Wall Street was just being amazed, Wall Street Journal's being amazed that she's got millions now. But again, specializing like you're doing in the folks that aren't getting served by mainstream capital sources. So uh, we'll talk some more about that. And then also with us, we have Elizabeth Converse from Utah Tech Leads, Executive Director. Explain what Utah Tech Leads is and how it is related to, but separate from Silicon Slopes. Absolutely. So Utah Tech Leads is an advocacy organization. We're a 501c6 because we have to say that, and we all know that nobody actually knows what that means. So yeah. essentially, we're, we're a 501c3. Okay, yeah. three, four, five. How many? Different three, four, ones? five, six, and nine. nine Apparently, no. that they got rid of seven and eight. Nobody knows what <laughs> happened to seven and eight, but they're gone. Um, but yeah, so we're a chamber-style organization, and it's our job to advocate on behalf of the tech industry and what their needs are, whatever those needs might be. So especially in Utah, those needs have dramatically changed over the past 20 years mm -hmm. from needing a positive regulatory environment to a positive
active recruiting environment. And so that's where we're at right now. And what is your journey to tech? Because I believe we've crossed paths before in journalism, right? (laughs) Absolutely. So um, I'm a nerd of a different color. Mm -hmm. I come from the policy world. I've worked in uh, state and local politics over the past 20 years. And I, before this job, I was working for the Utah State House. Mm -hmm. And so then I decided that um, I would like to make money. And um, (laughs) so I left the state. And then I went into nonprofit work, which somehow seems smart at the time. It, It wasn't great. But out of that came Utah tech leads and it's been a a great inspiring time for me well maybe you're the perfect person to to start in on this because uh you know there's this whole tech sector and so many different ways to get into it and i'm just curious um if you felt welcome trying to get your way into tech what were some of the barriers or what are the challenges that you may see here in utah for women at, at whatever step they are in their journey like you said you wanted to make more money i I keep thinking if I'm going to retire, I need to learn how to code. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I think that's something that we've seen. We've seen a lot of retooling over the past couple of years. There's been a lot of industry, um, really successful industries in Utah that are simply falling away. It's just not their time anymore. So we have seen a lot of companies kind of switch gears and offer apprenticeship programs and kind of move in that direction and specifically targeting women and people of color. There are a lot of women in Utah, in the Utah workforce, who are simply looking for opportunities that makes sense to them, makes sense with their time, makes sense with the workload that they want versus what they don't want. And tech provides a lot of opportunities there. So what are you hearing between Utah Tech Leads and your relationship with Silicon Slopes about women in tech and uh, how they fared over COVID? So um, I was sharing the story a little bit earlier. Um, My husband is actually the one who decided to step away from his career during COVID because he was the lower earner, quote unquote. I'm using air quotes. You can't see them. Um, (laughs) But he was the lower earner at the time, and it made more sense for him to step away. And I think that there were a significant amount of women in Utah's workforce in the tech industry specifically, who saw that their earnings power was incredibly valuable, not just to them as an individual, but to their family as a whole, and made those kinds of decisions, whether it was struggling to find additional childcare because their kids were at home all day, or whether it was just continuing to make that commitment and juggle all of those issues. Wow. Well, Kimmy and Ashley, you both mentioned that you, you did your time in the Bay Area, and I can only imagine you have some more stories to tell about tech bros. <laughs> That's not the point of the conversation. I'm just kind of curious, given the benefit of your long experience in tech, what your thoughts are about women in tech, the the great resignation during COVID too. What's your perspective, Kimmy? Yeah, don't get me started on the tech bros. Um, <laughs> I totally they're, they're want everywhere. to. <laughs> Maybe that's our whole podcast uh, later, okay? Um, but, you know, we were also talking about some bros are stepping up and being empowering of women, and those are the ones that I want to focus on and that I think have the power to change the numbers because it can't just be women screaming for equality. We need both sides, and it's in everybody's benefit to do so. Uh, I definitely had troubles entering the workforce um, early on in my career, even though I was a computer scientist, had engineering experience, and those struggles, I think, still exist. Um, sometimes are better or worse. In terms of what's happening right now, it's an interesting time because we are seeing more flexibility. People are recognizing that we need more flexibility in the workforce and tech is that great equalizer. It has ability to then to let people work from wherever they are. But at the same point, I think what Elizabeth just said about you know earnings power, that is very important because we know that the wage gaps are still there and they're 
they're exacerbated in tech as well. And so that's where my concern is. I think everybody's focused on parental leave and enforcing that so that we have equality. But that won't mean anything if we don't have wage parity. And that is a thing I think that is driving people out of the workforce and maybe having women step away from their careers, particularly lower earners. So entry level. And that's where I think we have the greatest power to nurture our pipeline. The pipeline is there. It needs to be nurtured and they need to be compensated properly. And I'll just quickly say this is nationwide. But in Utah, if you look at the earnings power and this isn't tech specific, but I imagine that it's reflective is women are earning about 70 percent of what a man earns. That cannot continue to exist and us expect that women will have greater representation in the workforce and at the higher levels, at the sea levels. Yeah. Ashley. Yeah. So Silicon Valley to Silicon Slopes. Um, what have you seen over the last couple of years for women in tech in Utah? Yeah, I think that we were talking out there uh, with the pandemic. I think it was you start to see where the earning power and, and women stepping out of tech and tech roles. But you're not seeing that in the C-suite positions because they have the means to continue on. They can provide and get childcare that they need. And they, while carrying a lot of the burden, still can have financial means to to stay there. Where I'm concerned and where I see the future is, is kind of this next wave of making sure that there's a pipeline and there's a path for more women to get into leadership roles as the current women in leadership roles mm-hmm. move on and kind of retire making sure that that pipeline still exists. And so leaning in with what Kemi was saying, you know, we can joke about tech bros, but that's also what it will take is that partnership, that allyship from them in order to get more women homegrown and being pulled up through the ranks in our tech community in order to have them have that pipeline and have that path into these positions that we see. So with the current trends and in recent years with the pandemic, I see that being a little bit of a gap, but I also see a lot of promise with remote work and having a lot more optionality for remote and more flexible work where um, we'll rebuild that pipeline here quickly. But I think the, the pandemic did was a, a minor step back that I'm hoping we'll be able to take two steps forward from here. Let's talk some advice for women listening to this, women, girls, a female identifying about getting into tech because As you were saying, Elizabeth, there's a lot of industries, it's no longer their time, but all those industries need tech savvy people. So is there a way that we need to maybe alter our thinking about getting into tech, Kimmy? Absolutely. Uh, I think we always draw are drawn to be the engineer, be the coder. And I'm saying that even though that was my background, but I will say, you know, when I wasn't hired as an engineer, I started working in a different tangential area, user experience design, because that was something that I was good at is thinking about how do you make it more human? But absolutely, if you think about tech, it's become the driving force of our economy. So there are a lot of jobs that are available in that space. There's HR, there's sales, there's marketing, there's all of the things that are actually transferable skills. So absolutely, what Elizabeth said is we need reskilling and retooling, but sometimes there are absolutely well-qualified women out there that are working in different industries that could easily, easily translate into the tech industry. And it's a powerful way to enter tech. How, do you have any recommendations? Are there any certifications that you recommend people get outside I, of going to an IT program? I, I do want to call out two organizations. So Tech Moms has been doing an incredible job in getting more women into the workforce and into tech. I, I think they're doing an incredible job. And then um, Women in Sales has also been doing quite a phenomenal job. And they're obviously the tech industry is a huge employer. 
Uh, and then I'll, we'll also say Women Tech Council has been doing a lot in terms of empowering not only women in, currently in the workforce, but the women that will follow. So she tech and empowering our, our youth. And I think that is extremely important for us to see it and believe it. We need to empower the girls that are going to be the next generation. Yeah, I had a cousin who was a single mom with several children, and she retooled into uh, cybersecurity at a certain point, and it took a bit of doing. Now she works a couple contracts a year and uh, has a small business doing something completely different on, on the side. It really opened a lot of opportunities for her. And being able to navigate that. It feels like it's a secret code sometimes. What do you think about that? I think there's a lot of difference that, that people run into when you're using specific languages that apply to industry, mm -hmm. right? And that can be really hard to overcome. Like when you're in a room full of engineers or full of coders and they're speaking about a specific project and you have no idea what they're talking <laughs> hey, about. I learned the ID10T <laughs> joke. So. That yes, can happen absolutely. in politics too. Well, it exactly, does. and it, it does. does. It totally. absolutely does. And that's one of the interesting things with like Utah Tech Leads. We're able to kind of bridge that language gap, mm -hmm. but that language gap is a barrier. So if you're talking to a woman who's literally never been trained in a specific, a very specific tech field and explaining to her that as a marketer or a comms professional, she has all of the skills to go work <laughs> at this completely different firm that she's never even thought about working yeah. before. It's really just a language barrier. That's all it is. You mm -hmm. just have to make sure that they have the relationships and the understanding of the industry to make that move. Kimmy, can you take me into a bit of the beta boom mindset, your, your capital firm, and you're a diversity advocate. Um, in college and early in your career, you were often the only black woman computer scientist in the room. So do you apply all this, I'm sure you do, um, in what you do and how you work with uh, startups or folks that come to you for capital? Wholeheartedly, yes. Uh, because I think there is the thing that I recognize, and I didn't realize how big it was, even though I experienced it my whole life, there's a huge belief gap. Mm. I always think I got to have everything right? tightened down. <laughs> whereas I don't think that, if I can be binary for a moment, that that men go into it that way. Like, I'm going to learn that in this job. Right. right. And and so those barriers, those language barriers, they seem even bigger. And yeah. it seems that you're not qualified. At the end of the day, <laughs> It's funny, I think men just have this confidence and they're like, oh, I'm overqualified for this. So when I got my business degree, I was re-entering the workforce essentially and I wanted to switch into a different career. I wanted to go into ed tech. I'd had my kids, I wanted more meaning in my life. And I had read this job rec and I read down the job rec and I said, I don't have half of these things. I'm not qualified, I'm not going to apply. And my husband was uh, said, shut up, apply. And I did. And what was funny is I started the job and I realized I was actually overqualified. I was being underpaid and I was actually running a director level and was hired as a senior level. So those are the things. So when I think about entrepreneurship, that's an even bigger thing. It's a huge thing to take a leap like that. You're risking so much to say, I believe in myself to start something grand and be able to, to run something on my own when I've never done it before. And so a lot of what we do is after we invest in companies, we work alongside them to help them on the operational side. But I've realized that that's not the most important piece. The important piece is actually empowering them and closing that belief gap, giving them access to networks that a lot of men have, that women don't have, that people of color don't have. Those are the things that transform founders. On your website, it says that you have two simple concepts at Beta Boom. I want to focus on that first one, which is you focus on people, not diplomas or pedigree. You invest in founders with outstanding consumer insight, grit, and hustle. We're in an era of incredible student debt. Mm -hmm. And is it 
worth it to go and get more and more education. And I like that you're trying to balance that. You want folks with the skills, but you want to know more about their integrity, their character. Absolutely. The thing that I realized is that in venture capital, and it's the reason that we have such equality gaps in, in the startup space, is we're pattern matching against the wrong things. We keep looking for people that have come from certain schools, that have been in certain tech companies. Branding. It's the brand. Did they work at Google? Did they come from Stanford? And those There's more out there. there. There's so much more. My so husband and I talk more. about that all the time. Yes. <laughs> no call outs. No, no call outs. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and so that, that's what we're leaning into. Our best founders don't have those. What they do have is domain expertise. And that comes from lived experience. So if you are solving something, let's say women's health issues, who better to do that than a woman mm -hmm. who has lived that problem that may be trying to solve that problem in, for their life. And so those are the things that we look for, not did they go to XYZ school. It's not predictive of success. It is predictive of access, but that's something you can solve. That's, that's interesting. And congratulations. I understand that Chem Gardner Policy Institute at the U recognized you and Beta Boom recently. Yes. You're their informed decision maker of the year for your work in backing women in minority-owned businesses and for helping bridge the gap through a business plan focused on equity, diversity, and inclusion. I'm reading the tweet there, there folks. Many, Amazing. Yeah. Congratulations. Ashley, get in on that. That, that, that desire that uh, corporations seem to have for brand names. Totally. I, you know, my, my husband and I talk about this all the time. I, I went to Stanford. I played collegiate softball there. That's what unlocked that access to me uh, and, and worked really hard to get that uh, softball scholarship. And my husband went to the University of New Orleans and he is a founder of a company. And, you know, I talk about it all the time that his ability to start, run, execute a company it's not the pedigree that he came from. It is his grit, his tenacity, and his risk-taking, um, informed risk-taking that, that really sets us up. And we talk about it all the time where my pedigree, my background, everything that's on my resume makes it look like I check all the boxes. And while I'm very successful in my career and not to sell myself short, there are there are there's a way about idealism, when, especially when I look at my my colleagues that I went to school with, it, it's an idealistic that doesn't translate to reality. Oftentimes, when when you come from a pedigree like that, and you really get into groupthink versus a diverse thought of what the real world and what the end consumer wants to see at the end of the day. Well, Google Fiber is growing in Utah, and I got some stats that uh, you're up to 100,000 households in the Salt Lake Valley and Provo. You're looking at more, what, White City, Draper, Riverton, Springvale, Springville, West Bountiful, West Jordan, just starting out in Sandy and North Salt Lake. What are the opportunities, though, at Google Fiber, and how are you applying everything we talked about totally. to, to bring more women and minorities in? Well, I think if, if the pandemic showed us anything, it's how important internet and connectivity is to uh, Americans and, and women and families. So during this pandemic, at the height of the pandemic, you had everyone working from home and trying to be teachers from mm -hmm. home and online schooling from home. So and much so tech involved in all of that, right? tech <laughs> involved and the access to tech. And you start to see the disparities that transpired um, with those that had access to tech and those that did not. And, and so Google Fiber really excited to 
be working where I am in order to provide more connectivity to more homes and more places. We are growing and expanding um, not only in Utah, but across the West region and very excited about those opportunities. Um, we have everything and, and something that I love is we're not looking for coders necessarily here locally. We are operators. And so uh, looking for frontline salespeople, door to door, um, inventory acquisition managers that are building relationships, relationship managers with property owners and, and real estate developers across um, across Utah. And uh, you, you can know, get into tech. This you can way. get into tech that way. And you have a new cool office, don't you, in the Granary District? We, we do. Mm-hmm. Next to that opened. camp, whatever that campus mm-hmm. thing is with all the, the cool stuff that you can go and do. Yep, totally. All right. So what's the website or how can people get in touch? And you have can, you started a softball team yet? I've not started a softball <laughs> team. My Our sales team has a slow pitch softball team and I have refused to join. I will get out there. I promise them. But I'm is it way... Is slow pitch? Is that it where it is? Because it's, it's slow pitch, pitch and yep. I'm too competitive. I'm way too competitive. I don't know how to dial it down. I love it. Totally. Love it. But googlefiber.com, uh, you can look at our career site on there and, and check out what options there are. We'll put a link in the show notes. And then Elizabeth, Utah Tech Leads, how can people get involved? Who's it for? And what is this political festivus you got going on May 17th? (laughs) Yeah, so on May 17th, we're holding a political festivus. For those of you who don't know what festivus is, it's the holiday for the rest of us. Um, We hold a... Airing of grievances? It's the airing of grievances. (laughs) And I was very specific that there will be no feats of strength because (laughs) we are doing this via Zoom. But um, we actually surveyed, late last year, we surveyed the entire tech community. And one of the questions that we asked was whether they thought that their vote mattered. And over 50% of them said no and then if you add the maybes that 75 percent of the tech community doesn't feel like they have political power so wow yeah it's a lot and we are the fastest growing industry in the state and that's not okay so we're kind of starting these series where we um, integrate with the community and um, interact with them and kind of figure out exactly what issues they care about and how we can mobilize the community to be more actively engaged in Utah politics and is it these kinds of events that folks can get involved with more than anything with Utah Tech Leads absolutely that's the easiest way to get involved. Um, you just go to our website, utahtechleads.com. You can find all of our information there. Um, but then we also, we want people in for the long haul. Leadership takes a commitment, and we are looking to build a Utah that is sustainable for all of us, including the tech industry. And so that's really where we're focused. Well, and having women in the room, especially mm-hmm. on hiring, I was reading something today about diversity loops when it comes to hiring. And um, if you have uh, the panel that's interviewing people and they can't make eye contact with women or what have you, um, maybe that's a signal they might not be a good employee. So having women in the room, right? Oh, yeah. Yes. Women, women hire more women. The investors invest in more women. They need to be part of the decision-making power. And certainly for our livelihoods in our political landscape, we, we definitely need more female representation. All right, Kimmy, I'm going to close with you and uh, the beta boom elevator pitch. No, I, I, I joke. Um, but what are you looking at? What are What is hot for you for beta boom when it comes to investing these days? What are you looking at or curious to see come to fruition? And then uh, any concerns about uh, Twitter and its new owner? Oh, <laughs> I say it's the uh, best for last. <laughs> we don't have to talk so about it. So many concerns. We'll, we'll see what's going to happen to that platform. Yeah. Um oh. No, I'm, you know, where we lean into is where I think we've been really sorely lacking capital and sorely lacking attention. So things that can advance, um, truly advance our our social um, landscape. And so we really look at health tech, fintech, 
uh, and things like EdTech and, and Future of Work. When we think about the pandemic, EdTech and Future of Work has seen the greatest tailwinds and it's for exactly the things that we're talking about today. I'm very, 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 very bullish about what's going to happen in that space in the next five years. Uh, and then on the health tech space, we've done a lot of digital health um, investments. So again, tech has the greatest ability to close gaps. And so I'm very excited about those two arenas. Uh, and we've seen how important they are based on what's happened in the pandemic. Well, we look at that. We ran out of time to talk about Twitter. <laughs> but I love this. I hope that we can do this again. I think this is a great panel. And uh, I'd love to have you back to talk about anything, but in particular tech and what's going on in Utah. So thank you so much. Thank you. Let's Thanks get websites one more time. Ashley for Google Fiber. Googlefiber.com. And Kimmy. Betaboom.com. And UtahTechLeads.com. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. I'm Laura Jones, and this has been Radio Active, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. Tomorrow night on the show, more true tales from the agrohood with Al Dine, our punk rock farmer. We'll have the music of Gavani. We'll have hemp growers, a community garden project, and the Utah Department of Agriculture has a program that it wants to get urban farmers involved. Questions, comments, suggestions? Email me, radioactive at krcl.org. Thanks for listening. Have a great night. KRCL, Salt Lake City. KRCL would like to thank all the volunteers who came down and helped out during Spring Radiothon. Thanks to Andy and Ann and Brian and Chip and David and Joe and John. And also thanks to the Boxcar Studios and Rock Camp SLC for sending down help. We couldn't do it without you. If you missed out on Spring Radiothon, it's never too late. Donate now at krcl.org. Thanks.